0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The federal government is supposed to protect people from pollution, but if you're poor, black, and living in the petrochemical alley along the Texas Gulf Coast, you better hold your breath.
1: The air is so different. I mean, I swear, I, believe, I swear to living God, you pull into Houston, it's like you're oh, I can breathe. You know what I mean? And when you get back home, it's like, oh my God, what happened? You know, it's, you can you can taste it almost when you hit you hit the air. It's like poisonous or something. I don't know. It's just now, it's like this real foul stench taste. You know what I mean? It's in everything.
2: We just lost a 15-year-old last month. Little girl had um, she had been living with brain tumors. She had been having little small tumors all over her head.
0: Environmental injustice in Port Arthur, Texas, and more this week on Living on Earth. Right after this.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you're black or Latino or just plain poor, you're more likely to suffer health effects from polluting industries and other environmental hazards in your neighborhood. That's why President Clinton signed an executive order to promote environmental justice nearly a decade ago. But today, according to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, the federal government is not effectively enforcing the measure. These conclusions are based on a year-long assessment of the Environmental Protection Agency and the Departments of Housing and Urban Development, the Interior, and Transportation. Mary Frances Berry, who chairs the commission, says she's concerned these agencies have a long list of deficiencies.
4: In the last few years, they have not made environmental justice a central part of their mission. That is, they do not, in fact... Uh, review the impact of decisions that they make on these poor and minority communities. When they approve or clear people for uh, certain citing uh, decisions that are made at the local level, they don't bother to ask the right questions. That's one thing. The other is there are complaints filed by community groups on behalf of those who are affected by pending decisions, and the complaints are often backlogged without any uh, response to them in a timely uh, fashion. The other thing is that the agencies don't often make sure that community groups can participate in giving advice when decisions are made in the way that they're supposed to, And even when community groups are able to participate, they often don't have the information. Many of them are under-resourced. They don't have the experts, and they draw as much information as they can, whereas uh, in the law, there are provisions to provide some technical assistance to these groups. And finally, where the uh, agencies fall short is that they don't really analyze and assess their behavior. That is, what are they doing? Uh, why are they doing it this way? What are the impacts on the people involved? And how could they do it better?
0: What does the Civil Rights Commission uh, believe has been the uh, resulting damage to minority communities in the wake of this, this failure to fully implement uh, the executive order on environmental justice?
4: Well, if you look at the health care disparities that exist among communities of color in this country we're talking about latinos african-americans and native american indians you will see that the illnesses that they suffer from uh, including asthma and including all kinds of respiratory uh, illnesses stress high blood pressure you name it uh, all of these illnesses you find disproportionately in those uh, communities and the health research not done for purposes of the environmental justice, but just done on the health issues, document the impact of things like certain kinds of landfills and toxic waste and certain sewage disposal processes, as well as even noise. There are big studies now being done on the impact of lots and lots of noise on the health and the stress levels and the blood pressure. What we really are saying that we ought to equal out Uh, these hazards. We know that the price of civilization and the price of progress is to have factories and businesses and uh, all kinds of enterprises. And we, as human beings, also throw up a lot of garbage. But the point is to minimize having a disproportionate impact only on some people based on how poor they are or what color they happen to be.
0: Why do you think that uh, the order issued by President Clinton around environmental uh, justice seems to have such little teeth when it comes to uh, enforcing it?
4: Well, the main thing that the order relied on was leadership on the part of the people in the agencies and that uh, Bill Clinton and OMB, uh, the other government agencies that have oversight, would hold them accountable, keep their feet to the fire. It is fair to say that since the Clinton administration, no one in the administration since has done that. It is public knowledge that these environmental issues are not a major concern of the uh, Bush II administration. In fact, Christy Whitman, when she was at EPA, articulated, her desire to implement the Clinton order and to keep, uh, keep it on the front burner. Well, she's not there anymore. Um, I noted even yesterday there was some statement that uh, Bush made about the environment and he uh, pollution, and he sort of added to it some caveat about jobs, which he's concerned about because of the unemployment rate, but it has nothing to do uh, with the issue. It's just, you know, throwing up sand and dust in people's eyes. So there's an absence of leadership and political arena in the administration on this issue.
0: Mary Frances Berry is chairperson of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Thanks for taking this time with me today.
4: Thank you very much.
0: People along the Texas, Louisiana Gulf Coast face some big challenges when it comes to sharing a neighborhood with industry. They live alongside the largest concentration of petrochemical plants and oil refineries in the nation. Some 500 of these facilities run from Houston along the upper Gulf Coast, and unplanned releases of hazardous chemicals are frequent. These accidents have become a way of life for people who, as they call it, live on the fence line. But not everyone accepts the status quo. Producer Deepa Dande reports from Port Arthur, Texas.
5: Port Arthur, population 58,000, is at the far tip of the Texas coastal marshland, about 90 miles east of Houston. As you approach, signs for Spindletop, the first American oil gusher, and Janis Joplin's hometown museum pop up on your left. Nearer still, plumes of white smoke rise from the treetops, the green wall between the highway and the Gulf Coast refineries. The plants seem hidden, but they have been here since the oil boom at the turn of the 20th century, and so have generations of Port Arthur residents.
2: See the housing projects over there? That's where I was born, right there and my grandmother used to walk from there all the way down what we call dump road.
5: Hilton Kelly recently came back to Port Arthur from Hollywood. He had plenty of work there in film and television and his screen actor's guild card is still current. Kelly says he always knew he wanted to inspire kids with his success. But when he did come back, what struck him was the air.
2: I grew up looking at an orange sky. I thought it was normal until I moved away, went to California and found out that, hey, at night, The sky didn't have to be a bright glowing orange. You didn't have to smell sulfur all day long.
5: In a freshly pressed shirt and khaki linen shorts, Hilton Kelly stands before a barbed wire fence. It divides some 30 houses from a tank farm, dozens of smokestacks, and a maze of piping.
2: You can see the refineries right there, they're bordering this community.
5: At first you smell something like burnt matches, but then it sharpens. A rotten, eggy odor lingers in the heat. Most folks here have gotten used to the smell, including Kelly. That isn't until he had a conversation with an elderly pastor.
2: He brought that to my attention by saying, "Say, Well, son, I understand you want to start a community center, but do you understand how polluted this area really is? And so he started to give me a breakdown as to really what this town was facing.
5: For the past three years now, Kelly has been trying to persuade residents to organize and demand cleaner air, but he's found it slow going.
2: They don't understand how these chemicals coming out of these plants, when they talk about so much was released in an upset, they don't equate that with, wow, I'm breathing this stuff in, and this is why I'm coughing so much, and this is why my eyes are constantly watering all day.
5: He points to the day's paper. Two nights ago, they just, they just
2: had a pipeline explosion. I heard it and everything. Boom! It was so loud. See how the orange the sky is right here? Here it is, front page. Cause of explosion still under investigation. Natural gas pipeline ruptures.
5: And two days later, the details are still sketchy. Good morning everyone. I'm Andrea Bishop. Officials are still trying to figure out what caused that pipeline to leak and explode Tuesday night in Nederland. They believe the From June 2002 to June of 2003, there were 340 upsets or accidents in the Port Arthur area. Among these were 56 more serious chemical spills, fires and explosions, releasing millions of pounds of toxic chemicals such as benzene, toluene and xylene. Frustration over numbers like this have led Hilton Kelly to seek support from experts. People like Neil Carman, who was an investigator for 12 years at the Texas agency that monitors air quality. What he saw made him angry, so he quit. And now Carmen leads the Lone Star Sierra Club.
6: Port Arthur is a particularly egregious situation because there are so many uh, poor people of color who are living along the fence line of these large industrial plants, the refineries and the chemical plants. I've been down there on a series of trips uh, over the last 10 to 12 years, and it's been a very uh, frustrating situation
5: Of the six plants in Port Arthur, only Motiva agreed to speak to us. The Motiva refinery is co-owned by Shell and Saudi Arabian Oil. Tracy McMinn is an advisor on government affairs for Shell Oil. She says Motiva has reduced emissions by 10 percent. It has also invested $70 million in improvements to the facility, following a consent decree with the federal government. Despite Motiva's improvements and investments, a few months ago, the plant... Had an upset.
4: We had an incident. We had a, we had a power failure. Is what happened.
5: Losing power meant losing the steam that dilutes hazardous gases. So the plant had to release undiluted gases to avoid a buildup and explosion.
4: The wind direction took that smoke over into what's called the El Vista neighborhood, which is one of our neighboring communities over here.
5: McMinn says that within 30 minutes of the upset, Motiva sent out a team of air monitors. According to our monitors
4: and according to screening levels, there's no reason to be concerned. We did hold a community meeting in El Vista, and the reason we did that is that we don't want people to have concerns or issues or fears and feel like, they can't talk to us about it. Um, And we want people to be informed about what's happening over here because I think in many cases not having information is really when, you know, problems arise.
5: Hilton Kelly, though, has been out gathering his own information with gear he keeps in the trunk of his car. Using a 5-gallon plastic bucket with a vacuum screw top Kelly collects a sample in a clear Teflon bag. Activists call this the Bucket Brigade. It's part of a national grassroots initiative, the refinery reform campaign to arm citizens with information. After he's collected the sample, Kelly sends it to an independent laboratory in California.
2: Well, it finds out there was a big release of benzene in that plume, and it was right on this community and I took the air samples, we got the samples to prove it.
5: Analysis of Kelly's air samples showed levels of benzene that were not high, but were high enough, if sustained, to cause a greater incidence of cancers among residents. Tracy McMahon of Shell Oil stands by her results. While some Gulf Coast companies like Shell have reduced emissions, others in Texas have been fined stiff penalties for increasing theirs, This May, the Texas Attorney General fined Huntsman Petrochemical Corporation close to $9.5 million for releasing more than 16 million pounds of chemicals from its plant, a few miles from the fence line. In a rare criminal trial, two of Huntsman's plant managers were convicted of felonies for lying to the state and EPA. The two are appealing. But one thing is certain. More than 30 years after the passage of the Clean Air Act, many folks along the fence line are still getting sick.
0: Our story about air pollution in the community of Port Arthur, Texas, will continue in just a minute. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Much of the nation's gasoline, fertilizer, and plastics is manufactured along the southern Gulf Coast. Producer Deepa Donde continues her report now on the Texas community of Port Arthur. The town borders six chemical plants, and it's not uncommon for even young people to face a range of diseases from respiratory illness to cancer.
5: A few miles from the refineries, close to the tracks that used to separate black from white Port Arthur, Hilton Kelly waves to a small thin man at the corner.
2: This is Mr. Dominique here. We're driving up in front of his home. How you doing? All right, Doc. All right, but well, we're going to get out for a minute just to meet and greet, then we're going to take a tour. Uh, Mr. Dominic, this is Deeper.
5: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Close that door. Okay. A veteran of World War II and Korea, Reverend Alfred Dominic still holds service on Sunday. He's the pastor who inspired Hilton Kelly to advocate for clean air and was one of Port Arthur's first environmental activists.
7: They would never tell us that pollution was here, and that all of the Gulf and the Texaco and Atlantic Richfield at that time, they would never tell us that they were polluting our air. And this is what's so stifling to me. Why didn't they tell us? Uh, uh, many of my friends have died with cancer. I'm just one of the old dinosaurs, and I'm still alive. My
5: wife and I. Reverend Dominic's concerns for clean air stretch back to Jim Crow times, and he says it gives him peace to pass the torch to Hilton. But
7: uh, thank God for this young man. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't wait for nothing. He just got out there and started uh, saying what he had to say. You see, I came up in an era from the 20s on now when they would not allow you to speak. If they would, if you would speak, they would squash it out. But now it's coming to pass that people are speaking out regardless to who you are, what color you are, what country you're from, they are
5: speaking out. And I I praise the Lord for that. A few houses down lives 50-year-old John Dixon, a former refinery worker.
7: That's Snoop Dogg. Some friends of mine give him to me, and uh, that's the name they give him, Snoop Dogg. You can't be interviewed, so... You might
2: as
7: well rest. Did the German Shepherd ever have any puppies? Rest, rest, Snoop. Rest. You're not resting.
5: (laughs) A picture of Martin Luther King Jr. hangs on his living room wall, but before we have a chance to say much, a young woman walks in to return a fishing pole. She stands cautiously by the door, smoothing her hair.
7: That's a young lady right there. I don't know if she want to discuss it. But you gotta come We we're on the subject of cancer and environment.
8: <laughs>
7: mm-hmm. Uterus, uterus,
2: and you got cancer in, the, in your
1: yeah, uterus. I just wake up every morning. I got two kids to live for. I have a two-year-old and I have a four-year-old, a four-year-old, a man, you know. So I can't <laughs> I can't just lay down on my back and be like, oh well, I'm dying or something, you know. I just put it in God's hands. Whatever happens, happens. That's why I I don't claim it at all. I just... Everybody has to go for something.
5: Judy Williams is 21. You'd never know from her broad smile that this woman is a cancer survivor. She found out four years ago, a few weeks after she had her first baby. She thinks that there is something wrong with the air here. She can tell the difference when she drives into Houston. Even though Houston has some of the worst air in the country,
1: the air is so different. I mean, I swear, I swear to living God, you pull into Houston, it's like you're. I can breathe, you know what I mean? And when you get back home, it's like, oh my God, what happened? You know, it's, you can you can taste it almost when you hit you hit the air. It's in everything.
5: Not a person I met here drinks the tap water. Everyone drinks either distilled or bottled water, including Judy. What about the water? Do you trust? Uh, yes. Yeah. Do you drink bottled water? Do drink yeah, bottled water. You drink bottled, bottled
1: water? Bottled water. Honey, you don't have, you have no idea what's in this water out here. I mean, people pollute and throw... The mood
5: suddenly in. shifts to more serious, as Hilton informs Judy about the latest and most forceful of the recent efforts to clean the air in Port Arthur, a class action lawsuit for damages against Prem Corps, Motiva, Chevron Phillips, Huntsman, BASF, and Autofina
2: because too many young people like yourself is dying from cancer. We just lost a 15-year-old last month. Little girl had, um, she had been living with brain tumors. She'd been having little small tumors all over her head, you know, on the inside, on her brain. She died just last month. She was 15 years old. She was 15 years old. She developed cancer and she died of brain cancer.
6: In a way, you could describe Port Arthur as a kind of bhopal in slow motion.
5: Again, Neil Carman, president of the Lone Star Sierra Club.
6: People are being slowly and systematically poisoned on a daily basis. And while they may not die today or tomorrow from the uh, insults, from the pollution, uh, they will get cancers and leukemias and brain tumors and and uh, kidney failures and so forth from the uh, pollution uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years.
5: No one has ever conducted a comprehensive survey of Port Arthur's air or associated health risks. A 1998 study conducted by the Texas Department of Health did show Port Arthur had levels of ozone, hydrogen sulfide, and benzene that suggested a public health concern and could pose a risk to the health of residents. A local toxicologist recently conducted a symptom survey of residents in Port Arthur. More than 75 percent had ear, nose, throat problems, respiratory illnesses, muscle and bone. Diseases compared to less than a quarter of those in a control group in Galveston. Our last stop is the home of Reverend Dominique's daughter, Shazay Dominique Prince, a mother of three. Colin. When I enter, the first thing I notice on her kitchen counter are dozens of medicine bottles and a neatly stacked pile of prescriptions. Next to it lies a portable breathing machine, the kind you see in hospitals.
9: And usually, we clean this up with a little vinegar. They say, and we just put this. This solution is already pre-mixed. This one. So we don't have to add anything to this one. Some of the solutions we have to add this. They...
5: Herbalizer was a gift from her father to help her children cope with asthma attacks. Chazae herself suffers from chronic pain, earaches, and migraines. On average, she takes 20 pills a day to cope. And last year, the doctors told her she has a degenerative bone disease. I think
9: that the problem is stemming from a lot of the inhalation of, of different chemicals and whatnot that's causing it to deteriorate so fast. Now, it might have been caused by something else. I'm not saying that the plant caused it, but I think the deterioration is causing by a lot of the chemicals that I'm inhaling and, and digesting and whatever.
5: Just then, Shazay's oldest daughter, Tamisha, walks in.
9: Look, she's all clogged up now.
5: Yeah, I'm always sick.
9: <laughs> Every day.
5: Why? Huh? Your nose?
1: Yeah, my sinus and congestion and everything. Well it cleared up, but since I moved back here about about a month ago,
5: I've been sick every day. Tamisha takes breathing treatments twice a day. Colin, her eleven year old brother, stands quietly in the corner, watching us closely, holding a basketball.
9: You wanna show her a couple of hoops? He wants to be a basketball star. I think his cousin was one. See, his cousin was... Cullen
5: is the one that Shazay spends her time worrying about most because his asthma is the worst in the family.
9: And I mean, the first couple years of his life, he didn't even know what outside looked like, I don't think, because we couldn't let him go out there, because every time he went outside, he got sick. You know, that's ridiculous.
5: But tonight is a good night, and Cullen's doing what he loves best, playing basketball. There is a slight orange glow from the refinery across the street. They live at the last house on Foley, the closest to the fence line. Cullen's five-year-old cousin Mariah runs circles around him. (laughs) Mariah's wide smile and carefree skip touches anyone who nears her. Shazay whispers that the child came to live with her a year ago, just after her mom died of uterine cancer at the age of twenty-one. Shazay has signed her family onto the class action lawsuit filed against the six plants that border her property. But some environmental advocates don't believe a lawsuit can solve all Port Arthur's problems. A few have argued for relocation. That's what happened in Norco, Louisiana, about 250 miles from Port Arthur. But many longtime residents like Shazay don't want to relocate. She hopes that the refineries and petrochemical plants can simply do a better job.
9: I don't want him to go away. Like I said, I have a brother that works right out there, right out there, and he's been working there forever, and you know, I want him to get his retirement out of it. I, I don't want him to go away. I just want them to control their emissions so that we can live safely here. That's what I want.
5: Mm-hmm. It's nighttime now at the Dominic Prince residence. The children gather close to form a circle. We want to pray for all the people right here, Lord. We want to make sure that they wake up tomorrow,
9: Lord, and have another great day like today was.
5: Forgive us for our sins and all the sins that other people have done. Amen. Amen. In Port Arthur, Texas, I'm Deepa Donde for Living on Earth. (laughs)
0: Coming up, environmental protection and national security. The promise of peace parks. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graeber.
10: Scientists recently identified the world's largest guinea pig. The rodent, called Phoberomys pattersoni, lived about 8 million years ago by the banks of a massive Venezuelan river that has since run dry. At about 1,500 pounds, it was roughly as large as today's buffalo. Scientists describe it as a huge, strange-looking creature with a long tail so it could balance on its bent hind legs and constantly growing teeth. No one knows why the rodent reached this immense size or why it disappeared. But scientists say that it gives a new glimpse into life along ancient tropical South American rivers. South America had been an island for tens of millions of years before a land bridge arose about three million years ago, connecting it to Central America. Because of this, South America's animals evolved in isolation. The continent was home to a variety of super-sized mammals. Now scientists can add a giant rodent to the roster. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Cynthia Graber.
0: The borders between India and Pakistan, Mozambique and Zimbabwe, and North and South Korea are political walls for countries that have seen years of bitter conflict. But delegates to the Fifth World Parks Congress are trying to break down those barriers by creating peace parks. Peace parks are designed to open up large tracts of land to protect wildlife and be jointly managed by both sides of the border. John Hanks attended the Congress in Durban, South Africa. He directs the Southern Africa Trans Frontier Conservation Areas and joins me now from Cape Town. Welcome. Uh, good day, Steve. It's good to join you. You've been working in the field of peace parks for quite some time.
11: How do you define a peace park? Um, it really is a trans-boundary protected area that two countries come together, they open their boundaries so that animals and people can move freely across the boundaries. And before you can do that, of course, you have to have peace. And then as a result of that, people say, well, let's make this an objective for the park. In other words, the promotion of peace and cooperation between two countries. So that, in a nutshell, is what a peace park is. You were
0: able to listen in on a number of conversations there in Durban. Uh, Where are the most challenging areas for uh, proposed peace parks, do you think?
11: Well, people are talking about where we could take this further and... um, Obviously, there's interest in places where there is conflict, such as North and South Korea and um, in Kashmir. Um, obviously getting India and Pakistan involved but that's only going to work there if both sides of the border make a genuine commitment to making this happen and I think in those two areas there's still quite a long way to go. I think anyone working in this field loves to have a challenge and if you look at what we could do if if, if a peace park was established in a very sensitive border area and let me stress also a very important area from the environmental conservation point of view such as Kashmir. If we could get something going there it really really, really would be most exciting.
0: What do you see as the specific challenges, both politically and ecologically, that need to be overcome in order to make these peace parks uh, work?
11: Yes, I I think you've got to have buy-in at so many different levels before it works. Obviously, if you're going to um, open the boundaries and have this level of cooperation, you've got to have an agreement right from the top, and here the heads of state must uh, really say they want this thing to go ahead. And then there's a whole host of government departments that need to be involved. A lot of people think it's just a question of two conservation organisations getting together and saying, well, let's open the boundary, but think of what you're doing you're you're removing fences you're removing the barriers that in some cases have been there for years so you've got to bring in veterinary issues you've got to bring in health issues uh, you've got to look at customs at immigration um, and then you think you've got all those lined up and right at the end the minister of defense will put his hand up and say well nobody's consulted me it doesn't happen overnight sometimes it can take perhaps four five or six years before what is a vision becomes a reality. You've been spending a lot of
0: time working on this. Um, what are you most excited about right now? What's, what are some of the prospects that make you get up in the morning?
11: Oh, gosh. Um, I, I think I wouldn't be doing this job if I wasn't enthusiastic. I'm, I'm very excited about one particular initiative that involves the Okavanga Delta, and its catchment uh, comes from way up in the Angolan highlands. Now, we're developing a particular transfrontier conservation area that will help link together Zimbabwe, Botswana... Uh, what's called the Caprivi Strip, which is a long stretch of Namibia that goes out towards the Victoria Falls nearly, Angola and Zambia. Why it's so important is that in the northern part of Botswana we have the biggest contiguous population of elephants in the whole of Africa, some 120,000 elephants. But unfortunately they're becoming more and more restricted and... Um, We're working on the elephants in Botswana by immobilising them with drugs and fitting a number of elephants with collars that are linked to satellites. And what we're finding is that the elephants have a very restricted corridor where they can move out of Botswana into Namibia and up north back into Angola and hence back into Zambia. But before they can do that, a key part of this area is a bottom corner of Angola, And as you might know, Angola's just come out of some 30 years of civil war and the country is absolutely full of landmines. In fact, an estimated 10 million unexploded landmines. And what we're looking at is seeing what we can do to demine a key corridor in the bottom corner of Angola so that the elephants can start to move back, other animals can follow, and eventually, of course, tourism can follow them as well. And um, I never thought, when I did my training as a zoologist, I would end up getting involved in demining programs in Angola. But that's a key part of what we're doing. John Hanks is
0: Director of the Southern Africa Transfrontier Conservation Areas. Thanks for speaking with me today.
11: It's been great to join you, Steve. Thanks very much.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of marine issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR Presidents' Council. And Paul and Marsha Ginsburg, in support of excellence in public radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The philosopher George Santayana once wrote that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But history can also become too much to handle, especially if you're working in archaeology in the American Southwest these days. As more and more highways and homes are being built, archaeologists are unearthing an ever-increasing collection of artifacts. And as Ken Schulman reports, they're running out of places to put it all.
12: The Pojo Acre Corridor is one of the ten most dangerous roads in the United States. Accidents are common on this two-mile spread of asphalt, 15 miles north of Santa Fe. In 1999, the state of New Mexico allotted $8.8 million to redesign the artery and widen the roadway. Before construction began, researchers from the Museum of New Mexico excavated four sites along the corridor.
0: And finding a few prehistoric sherds is typical of, right. of Spanish sites. I think, yeah. the,
12: right. Jim Moore is a project director in archaeology at the Museum of New Mexico in Santa Fe. Here in the museum's research laboratory, he supervises four researchers as they examine, catalog and bag the artifacts from the pojo Corridor. It will take close to a year to process the 150,000 arrowheads, stone tools and potsherds recovered from the highway project. But Moore isn't worried about the pace, he's worried about space, storage space. We don't know if the, uh, the repository will actually be able to accept this
0: entire collection because they are running out of space. Boxes of artifacts take up a lot of space when they're stored. They're supposed to be properly prepared and curated in perpetuity on projects like this.
12: There are lots of construction projects in New Mexico and across the southwest. In the 1950s, it was massive highway construction. Today, it's oil and gas exploration. By law, contractors working on public lands must assess and, if necessary, excavate any archaeological sites that might be disturbed. These excavations yield all sorts of Indian, Spanish colonial, and Santa Fe Trail-era treasures. They aren't all the kind of treasures you'd expect to see in museums. Moore estimates that fewer than one-tenth of one percent of the objects he examines are of display quality.
0: Frankly, we make our living looking at people's trash and uh, you don't usually throw out good things. So we're looking at broken objects and uh, stuff that's
12: seen the end of its use life. Just because a thumbnail-sized glazed pottery chip might never make it to the display case doesn't mean it can be tossed into the dumpster. For archeologists, these fragments are priceless nuggets of information to be cherished, studied, and then carefully stored so they can be studied again by future researchers. And storage wasn't always a problem. According to Duane Anderson, associate director of the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture in Santa Fe, museums used to compete to see who could house the most artifacts. Because there was a lot of stature and prestige in that. But then when
0: uh, people became more concerned about the quality of uh, space and curation, uh, how things were cared for in climate-controlled conditions, and the cost of all of that, why well, all of a sudden uh, there's been a reversal, and now it's almost, well, as in the case of Colorado, they're saying, we can't take any more.
12: Unlike Colorado, the other southwest states haven't closed their doors. But New Mexico is getting close. Thirty years ago, New Mexico archaeologists had excavated about 13,000 sites across the state. Today, that number has increased tenfold. There are approximately 10 million artifacts in the museum's repositories. Part of the collection is stored in a damp, dark basement in central Santa Fe in what once was the city morgue. The rest is stored here, in the basement of the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture on the south side of the city. In the Pruitt House, the museum's basement repository, rolling high-density shelving maximizes the 8,000 square feet of storage space. This facility is named after the company that built most of New Mexico's highways in the 1950s and 60s, and whose work created the first wave of excavations and artifacts. Conditions here aren't bad. Temperature and humidity levels are relatively stable. Unlike the former morgue, Pruitt House has no exposed plumbing or heating ducts. It's not perfect, says Julia Clifton, curator of archeological collections at the museum, but it's a big improvement.
3: This building was just jam packed full of artifacts and the, the first summer that I worked here the big project we had was to process all of that material into standard size containers and once we finished that we moved it all out of here stored it someplace else until the compacting shelving could be installed and when we reinstalled that material onto these shelves Everything that had filled this place to bursting before fit on the first four storage units.
12: The high-density shelving did buy Clifton and her colleagues a little time, but didn't buy them any more space. At current rates of accumulation, about 500 cubic feet of artifacts per year, the Pruitt House will be completely full by the end of 2006, and that's only if the pace of excavation remains constant. Stephen Fossberg is state archaeologist for the New Mexico Bureau of Land Management. He says that oil and gas drilling in New Mexico is bound to increase. And as energy needs expand, so will excavations. We
8: haven't gotten to the point where, because of a lack of a curatorial facility, we basically were not able to carry out the type of excavations that we wanted to. I wouldn't say we're at that point yet. But we are at the point where we're going to have to, I believe, make some long-term planning decisions about how we face this curation crisis.
12: There are plans under consideration to build a $7 million storage facility in Santa Fe. The facility, if built, would give the state a 10- or 12-year buffer before it, too, reached capacity. As an alternative, Fosberg has proposed converting Fort Wingate, a recently abandoned military base in Gallup, New Mexico, into a mega-repository for all the southwest states. The idea is promising. It's also expensive repositories for stone tools and potsherds tend to lose state budget battles to more glamorous projects like museums, galleries, and theaters. The only thing that seems certain is that the flow of artifacts will thicken, and that while everyone agrees that New Mexico's past is important, no one seems to be able to agree what to do with it. For Living on Earth, I'm Ken Schulman in Santa Fe, New Mexico.
0: The great apes of Central Africa are threatened on a number of fronts. Habitat loss and disease have cut into their numbers. But the bigger danger for the survival of the chimpanzee, bonobo, and gorilla comes from the bushmeat trade. These creatures have become an increasingly popular delicacy in cities throughout Africa, and demand for their meat is on the rise. Some say the hunting of these primates is pushing them to the edge of extinction. Dale Peterson has traveled through the jungles and meat markets of the Congo tracing the path of the bushmeat trade, and he's written about it in a new book called Eating
8: Apes. He says there are a number of reasons why people who live in the Congo Basin eat apes. Probably, um, you know, as long as people have been in this part of the world uh, that's been part of their food source, but there's a tremendous variety actually of traditions. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are offended by the even the idea of eating apes and they'll say things like oh, we would never eat apes because they're, they're like humans. And then the other people will say, you know, almost the opposite, um, well, you know, what's your problem? They're just like an animal. They're just another animal. So there's this great variety and there's actually a third tradition which is sort of that they're a special animal and we eat them because they're special because they're sort of human-like but they're really an animal, this is a meat that will give you strength.
0: Now, you've been immersed in the topic of apes and the bushmeat trade for quite some time now.
8: What are your thoughts on just how closely related we are to these animals, to the apes? Well, I think you can sort of see the relationship um, if you go to a zoo and look at an ape and you discover the ape, you know, a gorilla or a chimpanzee or bonobo, looking back at you. There, There is a sense that this is an animal that is somehow different from other animals, that is somehow more alert, more intelligent. The apes are, in fact, close to 99% genetically identical to humans. Uh, If you see them in the wild, in my opinion, it's a totally different experience because then you get much more of a sense of them in their natural life. And so it's less like, say, looking at a person in a jail. Um, You see them in the wild and you see uh, an animal that clearly, just from your, your own observations, has a lot of the emotional uh, reactions of ordinary people. You know, I've spoken to uh, hunters who, uh, who say that when you uh, corner a chimpanzee in a forest and uh, you're about to shoot him, he'll, he'll beg for his life. Chimpanzees have a lot of gestures that are really, really recognizable to people, including the begging gesture. So what's different What's what's changed? Why the concern about eating apes today? Well, population growth. Um, this is a part of the world where p- human numbers are doubling every 23 years. Um, there has been, you know, the entry of modern weapons and modern hunting tools and technology into this part of the world. And then the third thing and the most important thing is the entry of European and Asian loggers who have cut roads into the Congo Basin and opened up what was previously Uh, a completely remote and very inaccessible part of the world have opened it up to hunting and trading and uh, the commerce.
0: In your book you have uh, some pictures of the bushmeat trade. Uh, Could you open your book and and describe some of these pictures for me please? Okay.
8: Uh, I've opened this kind of randomly to a photograph of a gorilla head in a bowl in someone's kitchen and um, this was not a set-up photograph. I've spoken to Carl Lamont, the photographer, about this photograph. Carl met this hunter who had uh, been um, hired by a police chief in uh, southern Cameroon to kill a gorilla. The uh, chief gave him a gun, lent him a gun, and the hunter went out and killed the gorilla and then sent back the meat to the uh, to the police chief. And since he was the hunter, he was allowed to keep the head and an arm. Now, it's bizarre seeing this head on a plate and it kind of looks like John the Baptist uh, you know, uh, and it has that sort of iconic quality to it but um, in fact there is a lot of meat in a gorilla head and this is uh, food but it's a very disturbing photograph Another picture there? Well right to the to the, to the right of the gorilla head is a, a picture of a gorilla hand in a restaurant This is not a high class restaurant This is a pretty rough restaurant in a in a rough logging town, um, and the the hand has not been cooked, so it's just a disembodied hand by a a group of beer bottles, and I'm sure it was going to be food, and uh, Carl took the picture. Let's talk a little bit about numbers. How many gorillas are there left? You say they'll be gone in a generation. The numbers are not encouraging. Um, there are only about a hundred and twenty thousand gorillas left in the world as far as we know. Maybe 200 or 250,000 wild chimpanzees left in the world and only somewhere between 5,000 and 50,000 bonobos. Those are extremely low numbers. Now, um, how many are being killed every day? Nobody knows. So a lot of it's anecdotal. It's just looking. But, um, you know, when I can go in a single day randomly and visit a meat market in Libreville, Gabon, capital city of the wealthiest country in this part of the world, and find a chimpanzee leg laid out in the meat market for sale, we know there's a problem. Dale, was there a specific experience that prompted you to write this book? Well, I think, um, you know, this is the biggest conservation crisis in Central Africa, and it's uh, it's been going on for 10 years, 15 years. Everybody knows about it, and nobody's been talking about it. And there was this amazing conservation news blackout on the subject. Why is that? It's a sensitive subject. We're talking about people's cultural traditions. We're talking about a part of the world where people are very poor. Uh, You know, my friend uh, Carl Amann, the photographer, tried to get some of his photographs published uh, ten years ago in uh, American Conservation and Natural History magazine, and they simply turned it down. It was too grim, too disturbing, too frightening, too this, too that. So... You know, in essence, nobody was talking about this very, very important subject. And yet, you know, we must face this. Perhaps the oldest
0: zoological foundation, the Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, has now entered into uh, an agreement with the German logging company in the northern Congo. Um, They claim that by working together with loggers rather than standing by, that they can
8: help preserve what's left. What do you think about this? Well, once again, you know, when we get back to what is causing this um, explosion in bushmeat commerce, it's the loggers. It's I think there's no question about it. It's the loggers entering the Congo Basin, building these roads, opening up these forests. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, the Wildlife Conservation Society has gone into this, at least this one logging concession, a very large concession in northern Congo, and they formed a partnership with the logger. Uh, I think my main problem with this is that... Um, in developing partnerships with loggers, the conservation groups are, in essence, greenwashing the situation so that loggers who are still going into the Congo, who are still destroying virgin forests, can now turn to the public and say, you know, what's your problem? We're, we, we've got these partnerships with the great conservation groups, therefore we're green. So if, if you were in charge, what would be the solution you would try to impose here? The first thing you do is set aside some land, you know, creation of parks, protection of parks, economic rejuvenation. Part of the the reason that this problem is so great is that um, the bushmeat commerce has become an enormous business, so it's a way to make money for impoverished people. And I'm not talking about ending the commerce, but, you know, the ape part of the commerce only amounts to about 1%. In other words, 1% of the meat that's coming out of the Congo Basin is ape meat. So you could actually end the eating of apes and the crisis that's affecting the apes and have no effect, uh, virtually no effect, on the larger uh, meat trade in the Congo Basin. Dale Peterson teaches
0: at Tufts University and wrote Eating Apes. Dale, thanks for taking this time with me today. Well, Thank you, Steve. It was great to be here. For the viewpoint of the Wildlife Conservation Society on its bushmeat trade work in the Congo, and to see the photos discussed in the interview, please go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, a trip to Chile and the island of Chiloé, where residents say plans to build a huge bridge to the mainland would threaten their distinctive culture.
11: Arriving by ferry is like going through a magic door to an island like none that exists anywhere else in Chile or South America. The Bridge to Chiloé next time on
0: Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in the mountains of eastern Africa. Bernie Krause recorded these mountain gorillas as they foraged for food near Karasoka, Rwanda. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Balinski, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lobet, Diane Toomey, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Andy Farnsworth mixes the program. Special thanks to Howard Gelman, Danny Bringer, and member station KQED. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Year. I'm Steve Kerrworth. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation.
6: This is NPR, National Public Radio.